Hello and welcome to the Archimedes podcast from the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. As I'm sure you're aware, Archimedes is the evidence-based section of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. And I'd like to open this month by pointing out a section in our blogs. Now, part of the show notes bit of this podcast will have a link through to the blog and a bit within it that we've called Basics, which are really a series of entries that go over the core principles of evidence-based medicine, pointers towards critical appraisal, and understanding of some of the numbers that people use when they're describing the effects of interventions. And alongside that, we've also got a series about diagnostics and appraisal of diagnostic thinking. But at its core, what is evidence-based medicine? Well, evidence-based medicine is a framework for thinking. It's a process or a method. It's the way of thinking about taking the most unbiased, patient-oriented, clinically relevant research and then taking that and combining it with the wishes of the patients, the young people that we work with and their families and your own clinical experience, the resources at your disposal to do the best for that patient at that time with that condition with the current state of knowledge. It's a transparent and explicit process. You do EBM because you do a process. A thing isn't EBM. It is not EBM to give a cyclovir. It is an artistic process. The arts of communication, of talking and listening, of understanding what the patient and the family want and working with a team of people around you to deliver what is best for that young person are as important as the elements of randomization and which statistical tests were used for the studies that underpin it. It is the five steps of asking a clinically relevant question, acquiring information that might answer that question, appraising it, looking at its risk of bias, then thinking about how that might be applied in practice, and then finally assessing performance in somehow, be that by assessing the quality improvement to see if things have got better for patients, or thinking about it more educationally and seeing what you have learned and developed in your time focusing on answering this clinical question. And EBMs can be expressed around about one case story, the collection of information that goes with it, and then a summary and a taking it forward from there. And that's what evidence-based medicine translated into Archimedes is, where we have our evidence-based case reports that come from real cases from real clinicians who've really gone away and looked up the evidence and then come back with something that makes sense. Now, the two clinical scenarios on offer this month are, well, quite different really. One of them happens really pretty frequently in my experience and one of them I'd never really thought about before. So let's start with that. Nadine McCrea at Adam Brooks Hospital in the UK and colleagues at Great Ormond Street and the Institute of Child Health had a case of an eight-year-old boy who presented with an acute left hemi, looks like a stroke on MRI, with evidence of a pontine infarct. It was planned that the child would undergo a diagnostic catheterization uh, with angiography to have a look to see if there was a vertebral artery di- dissection. And the parents were asking... What are the risks of this procedure? Now, I wasn't aware of this, but 
In terms of posterior circulation strokes in young people, vertebral artery dissection is one of the most common causes. And one of the ways of addressing and finding this out is by diagnostic cerebral catheterization. So the group went away and they looked through Medline and Embase with a rather extensive search strategy, got 149 potentially relevant papers, which they went through the abstracts of, and excluded all those that were directly relating to adult studies, but also relating to interventional studies, which are a different category. And they ended up with four studies that looked at paediatric practice. They showed, and some from the early 80s, that there was around about half a percent of embolic phenomena, 1% of vasospasm, and, and, and about 2% risk of having a severe bleeding episode. But from the 80s, the technologies have advanced and changed since then. So in the more recent studies, there were four of them covering 633 different episodes, all undertaken at centres with specialists in neuroradiology who were quite good at doing this sort of thing. And within that, there were no definite neurological complications as a consequence of the diagnostic angiography, but two patients that were identified as having arteriovenous malformations went on to have bleeds, which led to complications. And one patient um, with another complication of moya moya had transient neurological defects, which puts the, the rate of complications somewhere about the 0.2% level. Now, that's pretty small. If you put the confidence fold around that, it still doesn't hit 1%. But you've got to also be aware that this data is extracted from centres that were expert and confident in doing this. And it shouldn't be read as being good evidence to whip up a cardiac cath and start sticking it in the brains of young people. But it does help us understand that even for extremely rare and, to me, unusual procedures, it is worth looking up the evidence so that you can answer patients' questions as clearly and accurately as is possible. Now, the second case report in the Archimedes section is something that I get involved with really pretty frequently. And this is from Alana Levine, who's a, a, a paediatric doctor at the Royal Berkshire Hospital, also in the UK. The situation that raised the question this time was of a three-year-old girl with diabetes insipidus who'd previously had very low sodiums and came in unwell, and this team were desperately trying to monitor the serum sodium. Venous sampling was getting increasingly difficult and increasingly traumatic for the child, and it was suggested that instead of using that, what they did was take capillary samples and use the sodium from the blood gas machine in order to get a reading of what level the serum sodium was at. Again, the author went away and searched multiple electronic databases to try to get an answer to the question, how accurate is serum sodium measured on a capillary sample compared to a venous serum sodium and went from 367 potentials down to five that were found through the electronic searching and then through reference searching a further two references. Now the majority of these studies were in adults, five of them, and they weren't in unwell adults, they were in volunteers or in inpatients who were clinically not too bad, who'd given both venous blood and then had capillary blood measured soon afterwards, and the size of those studies ranged from 57 down to 20 patients. 
There were two other studies that looked at children, one of 15 children who were clinically well but inpatients and volunteered hmm, volunteered to give venous and capillary blood and seven neonates who were having blood measured who had both venous and capillary samples taken. Now the mean difference in sodium measurements was around about 2 to 3 millimoles per litre. Now, what does that mean, that sort of difference? Well, um, the uh, the Australian Quality Assurance Programme for laboratories uses a difference of 3 millimoles per litre or less as being accurate enough to do a clinical chemistry lab on measuring serum sodium. So it, it looks like 3 is about the level that's acceptable. And that's just about that level and tending, tending if anything, to underreport serum sodium on the capillary samples. When you looked at the, the children's data, it was roughly in the same line as this, but very, very small numbers. Looking at repeated samples, it appeared that there was a consistency with the type of measurement that was taken. So if you were taking venous measurements, then the venous measurements would carry on being similar, and the capillary measurements would carry on being similar, even if they were different. And so the clinical bottom line that emerges from that is that you can use capillary measurements, and if you're going to use those for tracking, then use them and use them repeatedly. Clearly, they are not going to be as accurate as what was imagined there as the gold standard of venous capillary sampling. And there is also an issue that point-of-care machines, like blood gas monitors, use a slightly different technique than would be used in your normal lab to get a full laboratory value. And whilst mostly that doesn't make a great difference, if the patient has severely abnormal protein levels, it may have a difference in that value. Now, from a paediatric oncology and haematology point of view, I'll also throw in an extra spare tip for you there. If you take blood off a patient who's got a really high white cell count, then send it to the lab and the potassium comes back stormingly high, it, well, it, it might be that they're in uh, frank renal failure secondary to their tumour lysis syndrome, but it might be that what's happened is that the white cells, all being fragile, blast-like and not very good, have lysed on the way over the, to the laboratory. And actually, your serum potassium that's taken up straight up to your blood gas machine may be a much clearer reflection of the number that's truthfully there. So, ending the podcast for this month, you get extra value haematology advice, in with your evidence-based medicine, and a pointer to go look at our blog and contribute by commenting or getting involved in the Twitter conversations that occur around evidence-based medicine and the archives of diseases of childhood. If you feel you want to contribute to Narcomedics, please do get in touch. The instructions are on our website. And if you have any comments, questions or queries, please don't hesitate to email, tweet or comment on the blog. And we look forward to hearing that you've heard from us soon.